Healthcare regulations are ever-changing, becoming more and more complex as new payment and delivery systems come into play, public payer initiatives launch, and technology advances faster than the regulators. So, how do rural hospitals navigate this regulatory environment to position themselves for long-term success? Well, with plenty of education, pursuing the right opportunities, and a realistic plan of action. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 69 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotchair, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So, Rachel, we know full well that healthcare is one of the most regulated industries that exist today. I think it's close to taxi cab drivers or something <laughs> of that nature. But obviously, uh, the maze of healthcare regulation, uh, they continue to expand. And, you know, we're at a system here where we have a skilled nursing. They have their own regulatory authorities. Mm-hmm. They have their own uh, requirements from the state and federal government. I mean, healthcare, it's just so massive. Um, so today we're going to zero in on how rural hospitals can approach the growing complexity of our regulatory environment. That's right. We are talking with someone who is an expert on understanding healthcare regulations and helping rural hospitals identify opportunities within those to strategically position themselves for the future. Absolutely. And our guest today is a friend of Hillsdale Hospital, Marty Ross, director of the Center for Rural Health Advancement at PYA. So, you know, you're not unfamiliar with Hillsdale, uh, Marty. Um, so I want to welcome you, though, for your first time Uh, to Rural Health Rising. So welcome today. Thanks so much, Rachel and JJ. Great to be here in the hot seat with you. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to grill you for sure. Yes. Um, So to start, though, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work at PYA? Well, I am a principal with PYA, which is a national healthcare consultancy. I've been with the firm for 10 years. Um, before joining PYA, I spent 20 years in the trenches as a healthcare regulatory and transactional attorney. Um, oh, wow. And decided uh, 10 years ago to give up the um, attorney client magic fairy dust in favor of <laughs> the consulting world, um, hoping that we would have the opportunity to work more hands-on with providers, sort of use, you know, the dark skills for good um, and assist them as they navigate uh, an ever-complexing regulatory maze. Um, And layered on top of that, sort of these um, intended transitions to new payment models. So I think I live Mm -hmm. in the space between strategy and and compliance, for the most part, the work I do with, with healthcare providers. And I am based in Kansas City, um, so you can't work in this area in Kansas City without having a, a exposure to rural providers. And in fact, that's mm. my passion um, in the work I do is helping rural providers and communities um, really use available resources to maximize the health of their populations. So, Marty, have you enjoyed the transition? Honestly, it's been 10 years now, uh, probably less out of the courtroom <laughs> Uh, and, you know, more working with some some rural folks. But, I mean, do, are you enjoying it? Oh, absolutely. Smartest decision, I guess, I could say the smartest decision I ever made was going to law school. Second smartest decision I ever made was stopping a, a full-time practicing attorney. <laughs> 
Well, you're doing a tremendous job at PYA, and so we're just so excited to talk to you today. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with the why, and we do this on every episode, so we and our listeners get to know our guests just a little bit better. So, uh, Marty, I want to know what's your why, what motivates you, and what gets you up out of bed in the morning? Well, hmm, if if I had a superpower, um, I think it would be described as taking incredibly complex regulatory schemes and breaking them down into bite-sized pieces and helping folks digest those into their everyday operations. That's excellent. And you've done that now in the capacity, really, of working with rural hospitals, though, correct? Correct. That's my particular area of interest. Um, That's what, again, that's my passion. Um, You know, I'm sure you've heard this one before, JJ, but rural providers are the Ginger Rogers of the healthcare world because they do the same thing backwards and in heels. Um, (laughs) I love that. I have not heard that one before. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, so I want to ask you a question, though, and this uh, unscripted, uh, you know, what attracts you? Because you've had, obviously, clients, big and small, uh, in healthcare, but what attracts you to the rural environment? It's closeness to the communities they serve. I guess I'm answering that, what attracts you to rural providers. And I think yes. it's the fact that you are, as, as a CEO, as a nurse, as a med tech, all of those circumstances, you live every day with the people you serve. They're the mm-hmm. people you see in the grocery store and at the restaurant and at you know Friday night lights at the football games. Um, and so the passion uh, that I have encountered with rural providers um, is so deep because they are so aware of their mission, um, appreciating that the availability of healthcare services in rural communities are the economic lifeblood of those communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, it's beyond just the economics. It is in, it's in the passion for community um, that there's, a great deal of, of pride in ensuring the availability of services locally uh, and that those are the highest quality services um, that people don't need to leave their community um, because they have locally what they need. And mm-hmm. to be a part of that and to try and help facilitate, especially I sort of, you know, I'm sort of the umbrella over the rainstorm of regulations for these organizations trying to protect them so they can continue to do their job. That's awesome. You know, I've often said that big system CEOs should spend at least two years in the seat of a small rural hospital. They should. There should be. And and because there's a lot of perspective, as you know, that we have, you know, wearing 10 different hats. And it's not saying that we're the best, but what what it would give them is an appreciation for what they have, uh, number one. And number two, the depth of, you know, resources that we have to find on our own you know, that are given in the big systems is very, at times, very difficult, which is why we look to partnerships like PYA, you know, who single-handedly brought together our IT securities. Uh, PYA did. Uh, they brought together, you know, a lot of our work to get an IT director here and then to work on uh, our compliance uh, with our IT program. So, you know, I just really feel that there should be, Rachel, you know, a a requirement that mm-hmm. you, you, if you want to know what disproportionate shares, you want to know what OB stabilization money is, you want to know what, you know, all the challenges 
uh, that we that big systems, you know, quite honestly and frankly, take for granted uh, mm-hmm. that they have corporate folks like you, attorneys, a team of them down the hallway from corporate. You know, we don't. You know, I have to call up Marty and 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 Barry and say, all right. Guys, come over here. We got to figure this out. You know, I've, here's what I've worked on so far. So that's just a little side commentary, um, because they are, they are in the trenches, like you just said, and they are literally doing this work. Uh, and I, and I think honestly, I think it's God's work to a certain extent. I mean, I look at this as my mission field each and every day. And I, I take that as a personal challenge for me. So it sounds like you do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all this conversation um, we've been hearing at HHS, is it okay if I use abbreviations or do I need to yes. tell you? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, health yep. and Human Services. In the last 18 months, all this conversation around health equity, um, and that is a driver of policy and reimbursement. Oh, yeah. I'm like, well, welcome to the party, finally, guys, yep. because right. that's what we're welcome about to the in rural party. healthcare. It's like it's scarce resources, and we're going to do Preach the it. very best by the community that we can do. And again, I don't think this mandatory internship should stop at the CEO. <laughs> I think everyone oh, I in healthcare can benefit from the, from the focus of, of rural health. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, that's great. So now, you know, from that great you know, advice that uh, we can give our friends to the, for me, the most uh, unpopular part of my job, which is the complexity of regulations in trying to sort through them. Uh, and, you know, our accreditation process, which encompasses, you know, five different accreditation bodies. Uh, and then you throw in that, uh, you know, you have the leapfrog that comes up on you every year and all those, all those things. Uh, you know, obviously for us, the, the complex regulatory environment, um, it just truly impacts uh, all of healthcare. And it doesn't matter our size. It doesn't matter if you're large, if you're a tweener hospital, they call them, if you're part of the system, uh, or even if you're a standalone critical access hospital, everyone and everything in between there, healthcare related is under regulatory, you know, authority and requirements. And so, um, I guess, you know, looking at this from your lens, how does all this regulation, you know, impact rural healthcare providers in particular? It's intimidating. And Mm -hmm. I think there are, and it's because you assume, well, these are regulations. This is, this is the law. People have to go to school for three years to be able to interpret and apply the law. And yet I have these wide range of requirements applicable to all aspects of my operations. And how am I to be the master of all that complexity? Um, And -hmm. yet, keep the doors open every day and see patients and submit bills and all of that. And I know coming from this seat is not necessarily (laughs) the best advice, but it's like, get over the intimidation. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. Everyone's swimming in the same shark infested Mm -hmm. waters. Um, Don't, don't start with no, which I think is what happens in an overregulated industry is we Mm -hmm. assume anything we want to do is going to have a number of regulatory hurdles. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, and maybe not hurdles. That isn't the right word. I think the perception is those are all regulatory obstacles and barriers. Mm -hmm. And we just have to get ourselves to the point that we can manage them um, so that they don't become the obstacle, you know, they don't become the obstacle to doing the right thing. Right. And that's easy to say because I, 
certainly appreciate the level of complexity. I mean, I've been sitting here today for the last hour trying to figure out what CMS is doing with this new code for chronic pain management. Like, it's one code. And it's just like, literally, it's 30 pages in the Federal Register. And it's it's just yeah. the complex. It's spoken in such a degree of complexity by the agency. And it isn't their job to make this easy for us. So at least they don't perceive it's their job to make it easy for right. us. Um, and so we've got to figure out what we want to do operationally um, and then work within the parameters of the regulations as opposed to having the regulations dictate what we can do. If mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. Yeah. it's, it sounds, it's a, it's, there's some nuance in that, but it's simply reorder, reorienting the, the framework of approaching um, mm-hmm. regulatory compliance. I just, Absolutely. if I hear ever, and I, I, I lived through this a lot in my 20 plus years doing the lawyer stuff is if I hear mm-hmm. the term, oh, I don't look good in orange. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> good Lord. <I'm laughs> and it's like, these aren't criminal I'm statutes. I'm so sick of that. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so down with right. that. But these aren't, these aren't exactly. criminal statutes. These are, right, no. these are it's primarily, uh, and I apologize for wondering a bit here, but you have to, I've read an analysis and it's probably been 10 years ago, so it's probably outdated, but it was a comparison of sort of the regulatory schemes applicable to different segments of the economy. And the conclusion was that healthcare was the second most regulated industry behind atomic energy. Oh, wow. And wow. the reason is because we're not just the regulated. We are um, the contracted party. Yeah. Uh, yeah because exactly. of Medicare and Medicaid. Um those are not true. Yes, they are regulations. We should think of them as regulations, but mm-hmm. they're truly mm-hmm. contract terms. Correct. Right. It, Correct. And it's just, this is how to receive payment from a federal or state healthcare program. Um, you have to adhere to certain contract terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are obviously very detailed, um, but they carry the weight of regulation because the party with which you are contracting is a regulatory authority. Um, right. which makes sense because they're taxpayer dollars and we need to have that mm-hmm. level of protection on them. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So like you said in the beginning, um, this was the kind of the same thought process I had preparing for this episode is the the two different sides of this same coin, one being compliance and then one being more about strategy or, you know, maximizing what you can do within the regulations um, and, you know, set yourself up for maximum efficiency, maximum growth, maximum opportunities. Um, but let's start with the compliance part of this because – Of course, the regulations are changing constantly. We're always seeing new things come out or things are being changed or, um, you know, removed altogether. So I think one of the biggest challenges and maybe part of why it's so intimidating, like you said before, is that staying up to date on everything and not missing any of these items that come out can be, you know, that in and of itself can be very intimidating. So how can rural hospitals make sure that they are really keeping a pulse on that and not missing things as they're changing or coming out that they really need to be paying attention to and be compliant with? Um, Someone in the organization has to have accountability Mm -hmm. for monitoring regulatory changes that impact the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally, that person's going to wear the title of compliance officer, but they may also be, they may also serve as general counsel. They may be a chief operations officer. It may fall to the CEO. 
but mm-hmm. someone, the board is accountable uh, to ensure that there is someone within the organization that is responsible for that monitoring role. It's mm-hmm. then that individual's responsibility to find trusted sources of information. Hopefully, for most rural hospitals, that's the state hospital association. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. They should be delivering that information. It's organizations like the National Rural Health Association. Um, I think they mm-hmm. do an excellent job of keeping they people do. apprised of what's what's coming. I think it's a focus good on friends to us. Yeah, I think it's a focus on what's here and not necessarily what's coming. There's a difference mm-hmm. between regulatory mm-hmm. compliance and advocacy. Um, it's true, right? It's a good certainly, point. Certainly, I mean, you're going to appreciate if you are the person responsible for regulatory compliance when the regs go wrong and when you need to be advocating for change. But you need to keep the eye on the prize, which is compliance. And certainly part of your role then should be sharing what you think needs to be changed and how to affect that. Mm -hmm. This is a sidelight. We're in proposed rule season right now. Um, We just got the Medicare fee schedule proposed rule for 2023, which does have impacts Mm -hmm. on rules. We have the hospital outpatient rule, which again has impact on rural, especially with the provisions regarding rural emergency hospitals. Um, right. mm-hmm. You need to pay attention to those in the sense that if you if you have experience and contribute, we need to tell CMS what we know, and, right. and so that's part of it. But that's an advocacy role. I don't want to. I would don't want those two to be confused. That mm-hmm. that the priority has to be the regulatory compliance component of that, um, and then it's friends. I mean, I, I did a sampling of prior podcasts you all have done, and the last two I believe were on sort of collaborative relationships with health systems, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the most beneficial opportunities for collaboration is having some relationship with the health systems, with their resources that can help you um, Mm -hmm. keep an eye on the prize in terms of what are the upcoming regulatory priorities. Now, case in point, no surprises, Act. Please don't pull your hair (laughs) out after I said that. I don't but, have much. Yeah, well, it, it's rough, right? I mean, it's a whole how you deal yeah. with price transparency. How do you oh, absolutely. deal right. with pricing? Um, that's just not something to try and figure out all by yourself on your lonesome. Um, right. I, I, I try I to can't. do that. And I've got you know 30 years of experience to throw at that regulatory scheme as I try to figure it out. But But look for friends, look for associations, look for other health systems that can provide you some insight. Um, and what needs to be done, and then treat it as a to-do list. Um, mm-hmm. It's figure out what operational changes that need to be made um, and make sure that folks in your organization are attuned to when the compliance officer, whomever this, plays this role is, when they say it needs to be addressed, it needs to be addressed. It's got to be a priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I love the breakdown between advocacy and compliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. that's, that's I've never heard it. Uh, it's in this term. I mean, it's pretty powerful if you think about it because sometimes we mix the two worlds together every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's an important perspective, at least for for, for me, uh, hearing that from Marty today. So, you know, obviously the more uh, interesting part of this for many of us is around maximizing payment, both new and existing, as well as public payer initiatives. So you have a a long history in researching this and uh, advocating and 
maybe even to a certain extent arguing uh, this and uh, preparing testimony and et cetera, uh, and certainly a greater depth in the understanding of this than we could ever even dream of. So so what do hospitals usually miss? Your job typically is to work with you know, the hospitals, you you have a passion for rule, but you work with others uh, and you get to come into these organizations and, you know, you've been to our organization, your company, PYA, uh, and have told us what we're doing wrong. Y'all are good at that. And I appreciate that. You know, you give us a little bit of praise and then it's all, all right, this is what you have to do to fix it, which is why you're, that's the purpose of what you're doing. And I'll um, point out that's both operationally when it does and does not apply to, you know, the discussion of regulation oh, as absolutely. well. Because like we talked with Barry about yeah. some of the, the topics we discussed that they helped us oh, with sure. are focused on regulatory compliance and or strategy. Absolutely. And then there's also just all the things that are helpful in general for running a successful organization. Absolutely. So, you know, understanding that, having worked in that environment, not only what do the small rural hospitals miss, um, but what are their biggest areas of opportunity in your mind? Oh, the start, the start of this conversation has to be the cost report, um, since mm. it, for our rural hospital, our critical access hospitals and their rural health clinics, that drives mm-hmm. um, so much of the financial health of the organization. Um, sure does. Talk about, and it, it's just you have to identify um, a qualified uh, individual, a qualified contractor um, to assist you with completing the cost report and uh, someone who's qualified to do that should be able to see the opportunities. A cost report is a, is is an art, not a science. It has, I take that back. It's a science, but there's plenty of art involved Art too. because if you really understand the cost report and I don't necessarily understand the cost report, but having worked (laughs) with enough folks that do that work, um, there are those that simply execute the mechanics and there are those that truly see the big picture rise off off mm-hmm. the page and right. can identify mm-hmm. those opportunities for you. So there is um, a wise investment for any cost base, any organization with cost-based reimbursement is a cost report mm-hmm. accountant that, Agree. that knows the industry. Um, that's first and foremost. Then I think the opportunity is understanding your community needs and wants mm. and responding to them. And I think mm-hmm. that conversation starts with an analysis of out-migration patterns. Mm. You know what services you provide. You know what services you are capable of providing. Absolutely. To the extent you can access the data to understand when individuals are leaving your community to receive services that you are capable of furnishing locally. Right. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of great data for this. The most generally consumable data available is Medicare mm-hmm. um, inpatient admissions. Correct. And you can dig into that and say, okay, here's a range of DRGs um, that we know we bill, well, we submit claims with these DRGs. So we know we can do these services. Mm-hmm. Um, let's look and see where folks in our primary service area and maybe even our secondary service area, where are they going to receive these services? Mm. Um, Boy, that begins to tell a story so quickly. Even that very basic level of data uh, begins to tell a story. Yes, you've got folks that leave the community because of family members, 
because they're traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, but you start looking at these patterns and understanding, okay, where are physicians sending them? Mm-hmm. Or where are our local physicians sending our residents to specialists who are then sending them out of community to receive services? Once you start understanding the patterns, um, that's when you start identifying the opportunities. Is I'll tell you what analysis we typically do sort of out of the gate um, with a rural hospital is look, let's look at the DRGs around heart failure, pneumonia, and COPD. Mm. There's, those are three, three sets of three DRGs, right? You know, simple, complex, really, really complex, right, mm-hmm. for each of those. Almost every critical access hospital is going to have some admissions in those DRGs. Mm-hmm. But where, where are those patients going? For right. those services, right, and and start unwinding it. Start having conversations. Yeah, here's the objective data. Let's talk about the subjective analysis that's driving this, mm-hmm. um, and that's going to start a conversation around how can we better serve our patients when they have need. Is this originating in the emergency department? Right. Is there mm-hmm. a distress of our ED so that folks are willing to leave the community and, and receive services? Um, or is it a is it a is it an access to primary care issue? Um, is it a is it a ancillary service issue? Mm-hmm. I mean, start breaking that down and figuring out where are our gaps that we need to fill because a rural hospital is the most effective when it is a part of a continuum of care for right. the mm-hmm. residents of that community. You're absolutely right, and you're you're dropping the ball in that role if you don't understand where the patients are going. And so that's mm-hmm. where I think the true opportunity lies for most rural hospitals is understanding that analysis. The related piece of that, of course, is um, post-acute services. Mm-hmm. Yes, our folks are going to have to leave our community to receive Correct. certain higher levels of care, but too often they get parked in a sniff, uh, a, you know, across the street or a mile away from the tertiary care facility they were at mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. no one takes the time to consider, Hey, can we get them back home? Absolutely. Can we get them closer to home? And, and that's one, another, I think we just got to figure out how to crack the code on that. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, because those are obviously financially that those swing bed admissions are vital for a critical access hospital, but more than that, it's the right thing by the community. You're mm-hmm. going to recover better closer to home. Right. And so Absolutely. how can we figure out that continuum of care issue? Mm-hmm. Well, it was my first objective as CEO as I set out with my chief quality officer. And I said, uh, within the first week, I said, John, uh, I want all the data. Uh, I want to know what my market share is. Uh, I want you to dig into the qual reports on every service line. And he spent, uh, you know, what felt like months, but it really was more expedited. Um, probably... Probably was almost two months of digging. Uh, the data, like you indicated, is not readily available. It is very hard to get. It's very hard to read uh, because it's it's comparing admissions, and that doesn't totally reflect you know your your volume. So looking at I, we did a ten year analysis, and we identified four to six deficiencies immediately with current market. In other words, services we have that we're losing where there's been an out-migration of patients, and then 
the wider gaps, which is services we're not providing, but that which our community wants, you get that through the community needs assessment, but ultimately marriaging those two, and we've started to do that. And we have brought back services uh, like Infusion, which uh, we had our implementation meeting for today, uh, oncology, uh, wound care, uh, hyperbaric chamber, pain clinic. Those things are really driven from looking at the data you know, points and looking at what is the market share, where's been the migration, and then how do we keep the continuum together? Because ultimately, you and I both know, all three of us know, you know, on this podcast, that once we lose a patient to a bigger system, they never, ever, ever come back. And if they do, it's to get the occasional blood draw, which isn't where my downstream revenue is on the outpatient. Someone coming here, and it really frustrates me, and I guess I'll show my hand uh, in this, is that I'll be walking over to the hospital and a dear friend that I know from church or wherever says to me, oh, JJ, you know, we're using your lab today. Oh, great, great. What, you know, how you doing? Great, great. Yeah, we're having surgery at the other place, but, you know, we just said, you know, we're close to home here. We might as well get our labs done here. And I just go, ah, thank you. You know, but, what you know, you have to be very careful. But, you know, it's the idea that, well, they'll give us the scraps. And so we have to make sure our quality is superior, and then and then I've started to turn the conversation like, well, oh, really? Do you know we have three orthopedic surgeons uh, full time, and you know we have uh, a relationship with the University of Toledo Teaching Hospital? Uh, did you know that? Did you know that we have you know the best quality you know for X, Y, and Z, and really begin whatever the service line is that they're saying they're migrating away from is to tell them that we have that as well. We're not just here for the labs. So to your point, I would agree with you that that is probably one of the most important things that a CEO could do when they're setting to analyze what is their market share and how do we capture it? How do I tie that to regulation? Um, Because when you start talking about these opportunities, uh, you start shaking in your shoes, worrying about the fraud and abuse laws. So Mm -hmm. how do I navigate the anti-kickback statute? How do I make sure I'm in line with the Stark law? Absolutely. Um, And again, that is... It is um, what has been accomplished through um, sort of the fear factor associated with AKS and Stark um, is far greater than they could ever achieve through actual enforcement activity under those I would agree. regulatory I would agree. schemes. Because I think it's just so people so quickly people go, oh, that's kickback. And I'm like, no, mm, slow down. Let, let's talk yeah. through this. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about how we structure the arrangement. Um, we can make this work. I agree uh, with you. Those mm-hmm. laws were not made to interrupt the continuum of care. They were That's right. intended to protect the continuum of care. We you need betcha. to use them that way. So then, you know, once the opportunities for a particular hospital are identified and they see, okay, we've looked at our DRGs for out-migration, you know, they've looked at these things and they've identified here are some areas that we can work on. How do you help them to put together or how do they themselves put together an action plan that's realistic, that is going to be executed, um, and that's going to put them in the best position? Well, uh, JJ hit the nail on the head. It is talking to the community about who you are, what you are, what you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of uh, going to, to meetings and, and talking mm-hmm. one-on-one with folks. That's certainly the marketing side of it. Right. Yeah, and Rachel, you, you, I'm sure you're well familiar with that area about it, it's <laughs> selling the hospital, but it's selling the community. 
Um, but then it's capabilities. And part of that's going to be your physicians. I mean, mm-hmm. having those good, that that's actually one of the strengths of rural hospitals is Agree. just the, um, the, the nature of the relationship with yeah. the rural health clinic and the physicians furnishing primary care services, as well as the specialists. They're very connected to the community. Um, they need to fully understand the capabilities of the organization mm-hmm. and the impact on the organization when folks leave the community and the mm-hmm. impact on the community when that happens. So that's got to be a really uh, a, a frequent conversation, a very frank conversation with the medical staff about that's we're right. in this together to protect the community. Here's what we have to do to protect the community. This isn't about the hospital bottom line. This is about the maintenance of services in the community, protect the economic health of this community to improve the quality of life for our residents. That's the conversation. And then it's got to be, there's got to be some focus on our high risk patients, right? Because they're yeah. the, they're the ones that demand our services. They I are, think yeah. you know, you're saying what are missed opportunities by rural providers? I think it's developing the capabilities to manage these patients locally. Agree. Um, that begins with care, you know, ambulatory care management services, um, remote monitoring services, mm-hmm. developing up those capabilities in an organization. You know, we now have since 2015 and keeps continuing to develop um, Medicare reimbursement for these ambulatory care management services. It's rough. I'm the first to admit it's rough. It's really hard to get to break even with the existing reimbursement. But if you can establish those services, if you get sort of the, the cycle of evaluation of patients, physician referrals, the availability of care managers to work with these patients, the ability of those care managers to identify both health services and community services those individuals need, that system with time can operate smoothly. And it keeps those kind of high-risk, high-cost patients connected to the community. Absolutely. Um, and that, again, we want to keep them healthy. That's our first and primary goal. Yeah. That's our mission. Um, but when they need services, they have connectivity back to the organization. Um, and it, so it isn't just the blood draw. Uh, there's so much, so many more of the services they receive. Then it's reaching out and it's connecting yourself with those urban programs. You talked about having an oncology program. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a connection with a cancer center. Um, Correct. And helping that that team in the urban area appreciate. Look, I've got a patient population here. I can I can do the day to day management of them. I want to be in a line. I want to be aligned with what you're doing uh, at the cancer center. I want to make sure it's consistent with your protocols. Um, mm-hmm. So let's be a team. Let us be, uh, I, I guess, the term a virtual campus of your urban organization. Um, let's use telehealth to accomplish that. But let's also, you know, let's use Project Echo type of arrangements where we are learning from you how to care for your patients locally. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we belong to an accountable care organization through Caravan, uh, and you know the results are are pretty amazing. 
being able to take that population, you know, the at-risk, high-need, comorbid patients, uh, ensuring that they're not utilizing the ED every other day. Uh, for their primary care, ensuring that they, you know, a lot of the cases, as you know, it's it's ensuring that they have their medication, but they don't know where the resources are in the community. They don't know. It's nutrition for the diabetics, not eating, you know, high, you know, sugared foods and sweetened cereals that are given out at food banks, but to teach them that, you know, next time when you go there, get the raisin bran, you know, get the bran flakes, get get those types of, you know, don't eat a lot of, of you know, X, Y, and Z foods. And and so care coordination for us and has been a huge piece uh, that we're really seeing some significant positive impacts in our community uh, from just, and that's just one person, one RN that's really working uh, that population, but a, a huge population panel. So uh, truly, truly, uh, I would echo your comments that being part of something like the ACO managed care is very important, especially in rural hospitals. So uh, we know that ultimately when hospitals put a plan into place to maximize their reimbursement, they create those efficiencies and then they ensuring that they maintain compliance. Um, then there's the other piece that's often forgotten and it's the best way to measure those results. This is one thing that we don't do so well at times in healthcare. We, we, we start all these programs, we implement these things, but then compliance for measurement, it's not always there. So what would you suggest, you know, uh, what are the best ways to measure the uh, impact of these types of efforts that we have been discussing today? Well, I, I think, again, just having watched this over, you know, the last 10 years, you know, when we started sort of the infancy of value-based programs and, yep. you know, we were all convinced at some point this was going to be a two to five year uh, launch toward value-based care. And now we're at you know, a decade and adding more years thanks to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But I, I still think the greatest single tool I have seen um, for measuring impact is gaining access to comprehensive claims data. Mm-hmm. And the easiest route to accomplish that today is participation in the Medicare Shared Savings Program because you receive true. that comprehensive claims data on your attributed beneficiaries. Now, granted, is it true. is a subset of the population <laughs> you serve. It is. It's often a very large subset in rural areas, but sure. it's just a Absolutely. subset. You, you certainly have to have folks that are qualified to analyze that data and produce it in usable format for your providers. But that's the goal here is help your providers understand who are the high cost patients. Um, where are we seeing unnecessary, uh, unnecessary ER visits or hospitalizations or miss, uh, you know, inappropriate use of post-acute care services mm-hmm. or the like, um, and start cracking that open for them. Because that's that's your, you know, if, if again, only so many resources, mm-hmm. goal is to promote the health of the overall population. We've got to make sure that the quality means we're delivering the right care at the right time. Um, and you have to understand where it's breaking down to be able to accomplish that. Because this system... Oh, I'm about to get on my soapbox. I'm going to warn you. Yeah, that's we love system, soapboxes around well, here. Okay, we've got, we got them. Okay, this system, this fee-for-service system, has been created to mask poor quality <laughs> because we believe that because we have an incentive to deliver units of service, because we're paid for units of service in most instances, 
that we believe quality is maximization of the units of service, when in fact in healthcare, that is most frequently the wrong answer. Our goal mm-hmm. is not most services, it's right services right, at sir. the right time. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to achieve quality, i.e. use of the resources in the most appropriate manner, we've got to understand where the system's breaking down on us. And we've just got to be relentless in analyzing that data. And I, I if again, if I had the healthcare magic wand to wave, mm-hmm. it would be the ability to deliver to rural providers usable, consumable reports. I'm not going to give them the data. I'm going to give them the reports. Reports. It's based yeah. on their data that shows them where these issues are in the organization. It's very similar to this earlier conversation we had about out-migration. Right. But this is really the utilization of services within your community for specific patients. And it's ownership of the entire continuum. It's not just the services you're delivering locally, but it's when they're leaving the community, what services are they accessing? Mm-hmm. And picking up you know, ownership, um, starting with, you know, let's make sure we're following evidence-based protocols. Um, and if you need a starting point, start with time-sensitive diagnoses. So let's make sure our ER understands how to run a stroke and a an, mm-hmm. a, an MI and mm-hmm. how to manage a patient with sepsis and appreciate when it's severe severe septic versus septic shock and the intervention's appropriate. You know, if they're using the one-hour bundle appropriately mm-hmm. and not the outdated three-hour intervention. And, and let's let's get on that page and let's adhere to evidence-based practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and and let's let's measure ourselves against mm-hmm. those practices. You know, that's that's pretty simple work. I mean, that's always so wrong to say because it's added work <laughs> on folks who are already working very, very hard. Maybe straightforward can, as opposed to simple. <laughs> there you go. It's, but it is. It's sort of like, okay, let's take all the folks that came into our ER, you know, that had a heart attack. And let's look at the medical record and how did we manage that patient? And let's, yes. let's talk about where we went wrong. Let's see why did it take us 30 minutes to do this? Yeah. You know, what, mm-hmm. what can we break down the process and fix it? But we're just not going to know that stuff um, unless we have access to, and I don't even want to say data. I want to say the report. we got to mm-hmm. get it from just the raw data to the useful report. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, I'm not really talking a lot about healthcare regulation here, am I? But I think that's the issue here is that <laughs> it it's is. all so tightly wound together. It is. Right. right. So, you know, we could talk for hours. And sadly, Marty, our time has come to an end. Uh, you make this very complex issue um, so relatable in in your ability just to break it down. And I really appreciate that. Uh, and I really do. You, you, you know, this is what can be intimidating for rule providers and CEOs is when the attorneys all get in a room and they talk over us. And they talk beyond us. And so one of the things that I want to, you know, really highlight for PYA and what you do and your team is you, you don't do that. You don't come in with hubris. And I've had, uh, I've had consultants come in, you know, and do that and they don't last. Um, our relationship with PYA has been long term because of the type of work that you provide. So I want to thank you for taking these very complex issues 
in putting them together in an understanding that rural hospital executives, providers can understand and relate to and then create actionable plans because I think that's the key moving forward. So I want to, again, thank you for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. It's been a pleasure to talk to you first time. Uh, here on our episode, and we hope to, you know, maybe have you back again sometime oh, yes. in the future because there's a lot happening in Washington, D.C. right now. A lot of things are changing, inpatient perspective payment, outpatient, all of these things that we probably should be talking to you about because those that listen to this podcast across the country are invested in keeping their rural hospitals open and the, the steps a legislature can take in each respective state and in the nation, uh, the, the federal legislature can impact negatively uh, those operations, which means those hospitals close. So having the best information available for us to make those decisions, I'd probably like to invite you back again if you're open to it. Uh, anytime, anyplace. Absolutely. Awesome. Now, uh, JJ, you just, you made my day because that's what we try to do is get it down to the simple. Um, we do a lot of thought leadership at PYA and we really focus on healthcare compliance. We, um, one of my colleagues and I do a bi-weekly webinar called Healthcare Regulatory Roundup. And we oh. thought when we started it, just like you, it's about the same time you all started this podcast, we started the webinar series. We thought to ourselves, oh, well, can we really come up with enough topics? <laughs> You've got <laughs> Maybe so the stupidest many. <laughs> thing I've ever said, right? But, you know, it's just like, oh, let's do we said world the same emergency thing. hospitals. Let's do ops. Let's do fee schedule. Yeah. And we just try and break it down for folks just to here's what's coming. And um, yeah. here's what we need to be prepared for. Just you know, in the name of the podcast, it's Can healthcare you regulatory roundup. Yes, so because tune I'm in, in folks. Kansas City. Yeah, tune in. Well, <laughs> that is incredible. Before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know what is your most unique rural experience, or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life. Now, are you from a rural community? Now, do you live in rural? I, no, I'm not. I, I live okay. in the Kansas City area. But, okay. And have um, you have you been to rural? Yes. <laughs> I would assume oh, so. Yes. Based, on, she, based on your title, based on your conversation and your title, I'm sure you got some yeah. stories to tell. Oh, where do you start? Um, yeah. I'm thinking of the times. Oh, surveys. Oh, right. Hospital surveys are always the oh. best stories. Um, we had a hospital survey and you think in Kansas, right, that our surveyors would be attuned to some of the world challenges that organizations face. Um, but we just have had, you know, I just, I, I, I careful to use examples because they're all very personal with the organizations that we've worked with, but just in so many occasions where, um, a surveyor shows up and just doesn't have any appreciation for, how to mm -hmm. apply these rules in a rural context yeah. um, mm -hmm. and trying and working really hard to educate them without, you know, becoming, what's the right term? I try to be respectful in my yeah, explanation right. of how these rules work. Um, I, I guess it goes back to your story about all CEOs should spend some time in a rural community. All regulators need to come and spend time. I in agree. Rural facilities to understand. Um, the complexity um, of the organization with the limited resources they have to serve a community. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you for joining us today. 
Thanks, JJ. Thank you, Rachel. Really enjoyed it. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.